Hello, everyone, and welcome to Think Like a Dog podcast, hosted by Andrea Paiva and Millie Travis. In this podcast, we discuss how to build the best relationship with your dog. From rescues to reactivity, we'll cover it all. Welcome back to Think Like a Dog podcast. And today is our third episode. And we're going to talk about training tools and their reputations. There's a lot to talk about on this episode. Boy, is there. But we are going to, we are going to discuss the e-collar, but we're going to discuss that a little bit later on, just because there is a lot to unpack there. Mm -hmm. But we're going to actually start talking about slip leads and power loops. That's the first thing. And the reason why we're going to talk about that in this order is because, you know, the slip lead is such an important tool to introduce to your dog first. Leash pressure and release is so important yep. to master with your dog before any other tool. Yeah. And for us, that really made a difference um, with the slip lead and the power loop with our whole pack. It allows us to walk together as a pack. It Which allows is huge. us to be, you know, really for my dogs to be next to me, for, for me to know that they are in my control and they know that I'm leading the way. Yep. Once we introduced that, it really changed our whole way of walking mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. because I've never used a slip lead before we met. And when you introduced that to us, that's when we were able to do all of these things together yeah. as a pack. So yeah. I didn't know you had never used a slip lead before. Never. I mean, I was a harness girl all the oh. way. <laughs> all my dogs. You I went learned. from prong previously to yeah. a harness. <laughs> no, well, I mean, the prong I used, um, you know, when I needed to with one of the dogs we were helping. But the harness was the only tool that I knew. I thought yeah. that was the only thing that could, you know, help me yeah. walk my dog. And actually, our perfect cane... <laughs> used to wear a harness all the time and he you know he's a great dog yeah, and yeah, people yeah. that follow us knows what a great temperament he has yeah but we when we took Kane out in the public he looked like a monster <laughs> on that harness I mean he used to drag me around Not sweet candy no Kane. he was he's a powerful dog yeah, yeah, you know yeah. and yeah. he never understood the harness the harness for him was like all right I'm going mm-hmm. I don't need I don't need you here. Yeah. So yeah. he used to pull me around. Boy, yeah. boy. I we never used that. to be able to take him anywhere. Because he used that. to see dogs and people and get excited. He's not a dog that jumps on you, but he does want to sniff you. And he just goes. Yeah. And people used to be terrified of Kane. It was terrible. But I mean, that's probably speaks more to, I mean, his breed and people's perception of pit bulls. But yeah. at the same time, it is one of those things where, you know, it's one thing if a pit bull is walking up to you calmly or any dog is walking up to you calmly versus a dog who is all the way at the end of their leash and clearly not in control by their yeah. owners. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we want to start with the slip lead. And the reason is, is that this is our most basic tool. So the slip lead, everything when it comes to um, the leash walk, all these tools, you're you're going to want to focus on pressure and release. That's the language of the dog. The, the slip lead is it allows us to be able to give very clear and directional pressure and release um, and, and speak to them in a way that they understand. 
there is a proper way to use the slip lead. So I don't ever recommend just buying one online and then popping it on your dog and not knowing how to, how to fit it or how to use it. Um, but I'll, I'll start with this. I think in every single session that I've ever had where the dog has had a, a problem with the leash walk, um, when it comes to pulling, the, the problem is, is that the dog does not understand that they're, that, that the pressure on the leash, whether it's attached to a collar, a harness, a, any part of them, that it means anything. And that I think is, is probably the most basic issue that I find so that when we are walking and we are pulling on the leash or the dog is pulling on the leash ahead of us and we just continue to walk and there's no change, there's no addressing that, then we, we teach the dog that this thing, this, this only way of being able to communicate with them in a way that they understand, it, it doesn't mean anything. So just ignore it when it happens. The, the, the slip lead around our dog's neck versus the power loop around our dog's nose. And we'll get to kind of the differences and the, the types of dogs that I might um, recommend one versus the other. If we teach it correctly, we put pressure on for direction and correction and then pressure off for relaxation reward. So when we apply pressure, the entire point of it is that if I apply pressure towards me and that dog yields, meaning goes towards that pressure, towards me, I then relax the leash, right? So that's a conversation that I have um, with a lot of different dogs that aren't used to pressure and release. That's how I start. And that that yield can look like just one step towards me and then I'll give the leash back to them. And then I apply pressure again and I get another step and it's, it's putting the the building blocks together so that I'm able to go on a walk eventually and give a little bit of pressure on that leash and let that dog know, Hey, I'm changing directions or Hey, I'm slowing down or whatever it is. And that dog now identifies, okay, pressure on the leash means that my, my owner or my handler is trying to tell me something but a, a lot of times we think of probably most of the tools that are on this table right now as only being necessary as if the dog is doing something bad. Uh, so we, we use these as, um, as corrections, not necessarily a way to guide the dog. Um, and pressure does not have to be a correction. It's, it's direction and correction. Most of the time we want to use it as direction. So, I mean, there's a lot of dogs that come to me that walk in on a harness and I put a slip lead on them and we go through the whole conditioning them to the slip lead. And that can be a process um, depending on how sensitive they are. But the association that dog has is that it's pretty comfortable to pull, um, which is the main reason, you know, we don't use harnesses is mm -hmm. it, it makes it more comfortable for that dog to pull you. Harnesses uh, were invented for pulling and tracking purposes. They were invented yeah. for huskies to pull sleds. They were invented um, for hunting dogs to go ahead of the human, right? Yeah. There are times where medi like medically a dog has a, you know, an issue in their spine or their neck or um, whatever it may be that a harness is necessary but that's where we really have to make sure that that dog has a very clear understanding of pressure and release. Right. Um, but I think I'll always start with the slip lead. And then if that dog is still 
Maybe I'm using a little bit more pressure than I would like with the slip lead still around the neck because the dog isn't necessarily identifying pressure as something um, to pay attention to. That's when I will move to the power loop, which is what we did with your dogs that first day. And I mean, once we introduced a power loop to them and with, you know, good doing the slip lead with a power Mm -hmm. loop, that's when we were able to really take them out and I feel comfortable and they, they understand where they need to be when we're out in public. Um, it really made such a big difference when we introduced that. And with the harness, like I said, I, I only used harnesses on my dog before. And Kane was not able to be out in public because he looked terrifying. Um, and I keep seeing a lot of Uh, different stories out there with harnesses, you know, cutting into the dog's skin Mm -hmm. and creating these terrible injuries Mm -hmm. because yes, they were made for pulling. And there is a a girl that I actually follow on Instagram and her dog does some competitions and she was uh, actually showing a dog that was in a competition that was to pull this little wagon or something behind them. And she had a harness on and she explained that she's like, the harness is an indicator that for this dog to pull in this competition. So it, you know, the harness, we don't associate it with pulling. We think it's a more humane way of handling Mm -hmm. your dog, but it's actually a lot more confusing to them. Yeah. Because now they're thinking, okay, time to time go, to pull. time yeah. to pull. You know, it's their their response to that to that uh, harness. Now, with a slip lead, there is proper ways to fit a slip lead Absolutely. on your dog. Absolutely, and that we're going to make some key points here for fitting a slip. Lead. So, the proper way of fitting the slip lead around the neck is it goes all the way up around our dog's jawline. You want it right behind their ears. So the more, uh, the closer to the nose that we get from uh, in the dog, the the more sensitive that they are to pressure. And the further down the dog's body that we get, the the least sensitive that they are to pressure. Which is why harnesses tend to another reason why harnesses tend to not work. So um, most of the slip leads that you will get will have a lock on them. Um, some of these locks are plastic. Some of these locks are leather tabs. Some of them are strings. But the important part of that lock is that it, it keeps the the slip lead exactly where you want it up around the dog's neck um, at the highest point of their neck. Most dogs will have this nice little divot uh, right behind their ears that you want the leash to sort of rest in. Um, when you put the leash on, when it's in the proper placement, then you want to slide that lock or that keeper down so that it's keeping the leash exactly where you want it to. The important part of this though, is that you don't make it too tight or too loose. So if it's too tight, our dog can't tell the difference between pressure on and pressure off when we're giving direction on the walk, because, um, we've made it where there's always pressure on by making it too tight. And then if it's too loose, obviously we, you know, we run the risk of that, uh, the leash going over our dog's head. So, uh, the kind of rule of thumb that I have is that when I put the leash on, I'll slide the lock down. So it's sort of touching where the, um, where that like metal ring attachment is. And then I'll lift up, apply a little bit of pressure and make sure that I've got maybe an inch or um, a half inch of, um, of leash that comes out. So there is a difference between pressure on, pressure off. Now, if we do have a situation where maybe we 
made the lock a little bit too loose and a little bit too high up, the, the, I mean, probably the most important feature of your slip lead is the safety. Um, so having that safety on and then attached to your dog's collar makes it so if your dog uh, slips out of it or we don't put it on correctly, we don't have a loose dog, which is yeah. extremely important. Yeah. And with the slip lead, the one that you actually have at your facility, we can actually create a power loop with it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love. It's actually so easy. We take less than a minute to put this on yeah. our dogs. And once we, I actually prefer to use the power loop with my dogs. Yeah. They're big dogs. They tend to, you know, get a little excited. Mm -hmm. And with the power loop, I'm able to keep them right next to me. I'm able to keep their attention on me and let them know that I'm leading the way. So with the power loop, can you dive a little bit into how we would put the power loop yeah. on them? Yeah. Everyone gets a little bit kind of freaked out when I teach them how to put the power loop on because it looks complicated, but it really isn't. The first time that you do it, you're going to be like, oh my God, I can never do this again. But it, it's truly not, um, not that big of a deal. It, you apply it in basically the same way that you would apply your just normal slip around the neck. You're just going to make it a little bit bigger. And then whatever excess leash that you have underneath the dog's chin, give that one twist and that pops over the dog's nose. A couple little um, minor things as I try to make sure that the leash um, is kind of resting behind our dog's lips. And then um, the back, you know, behind the ears, you still want to make sure that that is as high up as possible because if it goes a little bit lower um, and maybe your dog kind of uh, trails a little bit behind you, you run the risk of that leash coming over the dog's head as well. Um, but it's it looks complicated. It's not. It's just one twist underneath the dog's chin and then it goes over the nose. Yeah. And how is the power loop different than the gentle leader? I actually bought a gentle leader before. Yeah. And I never figured out how to yeah. put it on. It, it's supposed to be like this easy thing. Yeah. And it's so popular. You can oh, just yeah. pick one up. But for me, I hated it. I was like, I can't do this. So there. OK, so there's the gentle leader and then there's the halty, um, which is kind of like the gentle leader. It's just a, a tiny bit different. So the the difference that I find, well, I mean, technically the biggest difference is that the slip lead power loop works off of pressure and release and the halty and the, at least the new halty, the old halties used to work off pressure and release, but the new halty and the gentle leader don't. So with the gentle leader, your leash is attached underneath the dog's chin. So when you want to, you know, give them some sort of direction, you're kind of yanking their head around. Yeah. Um, and with the power loop, the leash comes up above the dog's head. So we can kind of guide a little bit more easily than we would with the gentle leader. It's not as gentle as I would hope that they are. Yeah. And I got this for Max um, because he had a hard time on the leash when we used to walk. I mean, he's like, 70 pounds. So mm -hmm. it was very difficult mm -hmm. to manage him. So I got the gentle leader and I put it on him once and it was terrible. I mean, his head would just yank backwards every time really? he would walk because he would try to push me. Yep. We didn't have leash pressure figured out. 
And then I introduced the gentle leader, which just caused him to just keep turning his head backwards really aggressively when he was pulling me. It's kind of like that front clip harness. It's the same thing. And they kind of are walking with their head turned back or especially if it's sudden leash pressure, that has to be crazy uncomfortable when it's coming from underneath the chin. But there are some dogs who that works beautiful for. I mean, they understand the pressure of the in release um, and, and there really isn't a lot of pressure needed using the gentle leader. So it really, no matter what tool we go through today, even if it's a harness, I mean, I don't use harnesses at all. Um, like I said, except for medical issues, but um, even if you're, if your dog walks beautifully next to you and you have the kind of walk that you want and the behavior and the relationship that you want with your dog, use whatever tools. I mean, if the tool works for you and you're using it in a way that's fair, I, I'm never, ever going to uh, judge what works. Yeah. And every dog is different. So mm-hmm. it's, it depends on what your dog responds to and if you're using it correctly. Absolutely. Um, with harnesses, I always use harnesses. I mean, that's the only thing that I purchased, like I said. So with my dogs, it didn't work for them. Like they don't understand what a harness is. It just means pulling for them. It means go. It doesn't mean stay next to me and let me lead. So that didn't work for us. But when we introduced the slip lead and the power loop, now we can walk as a pack together and do so many more things. So it's so interesting when you figure out different ways to communicate with your dog and how that can help your dog have more freedom, be able to go out to different places. And you feel confident and calm that you have control of your dog. And I've mentioned this too, There, with the uh, harness, if your dog like is a dog like Kane, he's very strong. And if he sees something that he gets very excited about, he's going to go for it if he doesn't understand that I'm leading him. So he's going to, you know, with the harness, he thought he was free to go and he would pull so hard that there are times that dogs cut into their skin mm-hmm. with the harness. Yeah. So it's, it's not a, you know, the tool didn't work for us. It can yeah. work for some people, but, um, but also I used to do the harness with a retractable leash. Yeah. That is one of my favorite, actually, and we'll get to this in a second. I think my favorite combination, and this is me being sarcastic, but you know, the, the combination that makes the least amount of sense to me is a prong collar with a retractable leash, but we'll get to prongs in a second. But yeah, I mean, harnesses are made for pulling and tracking. I mean, they're made for the dog to go ahead of the human. They are made for, um, for it to be as extremely as, as, uh, most comfortable as possible for that dog to pull you. But if it works for your dog and your dog um, has a medical issue and they can't use anything else, great. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, if if it works, I'm never going to knock it. I mean, it's there are some dogs that have to use them, but you have to be extremely um, thorough when teaching pressure and release. If you are going to rely on a harness, especially for a large breed dog now retractable leash and a harness. I mean, I've got a flexi lead as they're called, too they can cause some severe rope burns and Mm -hmm. it sort of goes against the entire point of a structured walk, which is your dog walking next to you. Yeah. And you see it all the time, owners with their dogs walking around and the dog is like feet in front of them Mm -hmm. and they're all the way back. And that's not how it's supposed to look like. I know we're all used to this vision of the dog being way ahead of us or in front of us when we're walking, but that's not the point of a structured walk. Right. 
it they're supposed to be right next to you. And that's when when we learned and you introduced the sleep lead to us and it allows us to keep them right next to us, it creates such a well balance walk where you can see your dog calmer and you guys have t- good time together because you're not stressed. They're yeah. not stressed. You're walking together yeah. and you can walk past any distraction. Yep. There can be a squirrel going right in front of you. Your dog will stay right next to you. And that was the big thing for me. Big dogs, they're powerful. They have a lot of strength. I personally don't have the strength to keep up with my dogs if I had a retractable leash and a harness on yeah. them. I never took Kane out. I just kept him home. I'm like, we can't go anywhere. Yeah. I can't control him. I don't want to be in that situation. People used to look at me, rightly so, you know, and say, okay, they don't want to be close to me. They used to go to the other sidewalk mm-hmm. if we were walking in the same street. And it's, you know, it looked like I had no control over him and I didn't. Right. So when we did the slip lead and we introduced the power loop, it just, it gave him that extra freedom. And now I understand, he understands what I expect from him in that walk, in that moment. You've increased his quality of life because now he's able to go more places. So a lot of times people won't use a tool because they feel like the tool is unfair. And, uh, you know, without learning any of these tools, they're all unfair. If you don't learn how to use them, they're all unfair. Yeah. But if you if you learn how to use them correctly um, in a way that makes sense to your dog, you are now able to bring your dog into the world and, and do it safely, not only for them, but for, you know, some of my human reactive uh, dogs that I work with. It keeps other people safe. Um, but having that that can not even control because I hate using that word. It's more that that ability to communicate with your dog in a situation where there is distraction, distraction, distraction. That is key for your walk. But there are some people that, I mean, and like I said before, I mean, I think we need to do an entire episode of the walk and what what your priority should be on the walk or what I kind of expect from my dog and the difference of a structured walk and uh, just kind of a you know, a off leash walk or a hike or whatever. I, I think a lot of people expect to be able to just go on a walk. And then as long as their dog isn't pulling them, they're fine. My standards are you have to be walking next to me. It's not about if you're pulling me or not. It's about, are you next to me? Who's leading throughout this new territory that we're walking through? Um, and the slip lean, at least in I use the power loop on my dog as well. It's the best case scenario. So yeah. there are some people that their dogs respond actually a lot better to the slip lead than the power loop um, and vice versa. You know, there's plenty of dogs that I work with that do very, very well on just the slip around the neck. Uh, they're very sensitive to pressure. They understand that pressure. Um, and, and we we don't ever, there's no need to switch tools because that tool works for them. Yeah. Sometimes when I'm conditioning to the slip lead uh, for the first time, I'll notice, okay, we're still struggling a little bit with pressure. And my goal for any of these tools is to use the least amount of pressure possible. That is my goal. Pressure on, direction correction, pressure off, relaxation reward. But I still want to be able to use the least amount. So most of the time I'll hold the leash with like two fingers and just gently pull. And I want my dog to respond to that. But... That's not always the case. It's just not. Um, so then I, I condition to the power loop, um, which is a whole process. It's yeah. a whole process to get the dog conditioned. Some some dogs conditioned to the power loop. Some dogs, um, 
you can just pop it right on and they're fine. Yeah. I had a session the other day that I just at, on the walk, I'm like, well, let me see if we have a fit in the middle of the street, we do. Uh, but we were fine after two seconds. Um, but the power loop helps keep the pressure light. It also acts on this uh, calming pressure point that the dog has on the bridge of their nose that mom, when they're puppies, uh, will use to sort of um, cup and release uh, to correct the puppies. And that's pressure on, pressure off. So it's very instinctual for them. But uh, just like Max did uh, during when we conditioned him to the power loop, because the cane and Bubbles took it beautifully, right? Yeah, they did. They did better than Max. Yeah, I mean, Max, Max, he threw a fit, you know. Yeah. He was very dramatic the whole time. And Kane, he accepted it. And, you know, he, he, at the first time we introduced it to him, he was kind of like that Kane face, like what's <laughs> going on? But then he accepted it. And now that we've worked through it, like you talked about, it's, we have to have a lot of patience in yeah. the process of everything. Yeah. So as we introduced this to them and they were able to understand what it meant, we never just, oh, they're, it's bothering them. Let's just take it yep. off. You know, so that's a big yeah. thing. You have to stay consistent. It has to, you have to stay in reality of, yeah. is this thing actually uncomfortable? Is it painful? Is it, um, is it a productive amount of stress? Is it positive stress? Is it, is there a goal to this? And there is, or am I just doing this to my dog for no reason? Mm-hmm. Right. But one of my favorite things in the world is being able to sort of, I almost can tell more about a dog uh, how, even if I know that I don't necessarily need the power loop, sometimes I'll condition them to it because their response to that shows me so much about how they deal with stress. So, um, I mean, it, for all three of your boys, right? Bubbles, I don't think even noticed that I put the power loop on. <laughs> I don't think he was at all aware. Kane shut down a little bit mm-hmm. and Max freaked out. Yep. And that... I mean, how a dog responds to stress is how they respond to stress across the board. So that told me a lot about each one of them. And we know Max is a freaker outer. If he wants something, Kane yeah. will shut down and Bubbles, chances are, isn't even aware that it's happening. Right? 100%. And that's exactly their personality yeah. to a T. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I don't ever recommend to anybody to just pop this on your dog without making sure that you've set aside some time to work your dog through it. Yeah. They are very, they're very good at almost can, almost tricking you into thinking you're doing something wrong. Now, I highly recommend getting a trainer it, because you, one, you know, one scenario is that maybe you are adding a little bit too much pressure and you're miscommunicating something to the dog with something um, like the power loop on that can be a big deal to the dog. The other scenario is that you're not doing anything wrong and the dog is making you feel like you are. So then you stop in the middle of conditioning and then that dog's response to that, whether it was panicking, whether it was shutting down, whatever it was, that worked. You know, now you're not doing it anymore. So I I think working through this with a trainer, even over a video consultation um, can be super helpful because then you can kind of Um, that person can kind of tell how much pressure you're putting on, what direction your timing of that pressure matters. There's a lot that goes into it, but, um, you know, I don't recommend just doing it and then, you know, hoping for the best, really make sure that you, you have some knowledge behind all of these tools, especially the power loop. Exactly. And it's, every dog is different. So even if you have a video that you're looking through and learning how to do it, 
it might be different for your dog. Mm-hmm. You have to know what work for them. And if they even need it, you know, if you have to go through the building steps to mm-hmm. get to that point of figuring out what you need. Um, but with a slip lead, that was the first thing we introduced that changed so much for us that we, you know, we went from a harness to a slip lead and now we're, you know, we're going, we're, we ha- we can do more together. Yeah. Um, but now we're going to talk about briefly prong collars. Yeah. Which you went from a prong to a harness to a slip lead. Well, the prong, the story behind the prong is that my brother's ex-wife was fostering a dog and this dog had lots of problems. Food reactivity was terrible. And, you know, some humans, some dog reactivity as well. So when he, he would go outside, he would just be everywhere all the time. He wants to go up to a human, to a dog. It just, he wasn't manageable. And I was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. I wanted to take him out on a walk. There was nobody home. So I turned to the prong collar. Mm-hmm. I bought one, got it went online, looked up a video, figured out how to properly fit it. I did properly fit it onto him. And at that moment, because I was 15 and I, at that, I had two pit bulls that yeah. I was trying to take on a walk, yeah. that prong collar gave me some control of him. Did it confuse him? Probably because I just took that prong collar, put it on and we went on a walk. So he didn't really understand what it meant, but it gave me that control uh, at that time. You know, yeah, but absolutely. It, uh, at that moment, his um, ex-wife didn't agree to using these tools at all. She was completely against it. Mm-hmm. She didn't even want to look into it. And they were out one day. She took him out on a walk and he was re- wearing just a regular leash with a collar. Mm-hmm. And a little dog was off leash, ran towards her. And he went for the little dog, rightly so. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, the dog was off leash and he ended up biting the little dog. Mm-hmm. For that reason, exactly for that reason, the prong then worked for you. The prong then gave that dog a better quality of life versus, uh, you know, just walking on the collar or um, the regular flat collar and the leash because that dog got to go out and do things and then not feel so nervous, right? Mm-hmm. Nervous enough to... Um, either go for another dog, which in that situation, it wasn't his fault, but that, that gave him the ability to go out for a walk safely. So then the prong worked. Now for, for me, I'm not, I I don't have a ton of experience working with prongs. So I hate to say um, too much about them because I just, it's, I hate to also say I've never needed to use one because there are times where uh, probably I can think of the dogs that I know that I recommended the prong for, but it's not even about needed to use them. It's just not my preferred tool. Um, My preferred tool is the slip lead and and the power loop. But times where uh, somebody will walk into the center with their dog on a prong, and even if they're using it correctly, there are times where I will say, okay, maybe I want to get I, I want to take the prong off and, and transition to a slip. There are other times where I will say, if it works for you, I'm happy. But most of the time that people come to me, they're still having some sort of problem. And if it's on the walk and you're using a prong, to me, we missed a step, right? Mm-hmm. Then we don't understand, the dog doesn't understand pressure and release. And if they don't understand it on a prong, they're not going to understand it. We got to go back to basics here. The other reason that I really, um, I, the, to me, prongs, you can't, you can't guide. You, you have to correct. And I want to make sure that I can 
um, provide a, a good amount of direction to my dog. And I feel like all I can do with the prong, at least from me, um, this is my feeling on it. And until I learn more, it's just not a tool I'll, I'll really use. But I always feel like I'm just kind of waiting for the dog to do something. And then I pop the leash and then I tell the dog no. But with the slip lead, I'm able to build that connection and tell them, hey, this is why, right? Yeah. Because I, I've got your back. It's not necessarily just a correction. It's, it's guidance for them. You know, the one time, like I said, if a dog comes in on a prong and they're still having behavioral issues on the walk, most of the time the prong is they're walking beautifully next to the human, but they're still kind of blowing up at other dogs, let's say. It's because that prong represents a bite and it almost will agitate them and send them forward a little bit more. But there are plenty of cases where it doesn't. It doesn't. It works beautifully. So I'm just, to me, my preferred tool is the slip. Prongs are great. I just don't feel like I can't, my intention when I use them is in the right place. Mm -hmm. um, the only time where I, I really do suggest to use them is when I have a very forward and happy-go-lucky, confident dog, because I don't want that prong to be such a big correction for an insecure, reactive dog. So a happy-go-lucky, confident dog, I'll put the prong on, and I will. Um, I can I can kind of be able to control them a little bit more. On top of if I have an older owner in the prong, that's really my 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 way of kind of giving them some sort of leg up on a large breed dog. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there are situations where you would use a prong, but of course it's, you have to go down that ladder of teaching the correct leash skills, then okay. figuring out what works for you. Don't just buy this online and just start correct. using it. You know, like in my case, I did it and, you know, it works for us at a moment, but it didn't give him the structure he needed. Right. And perhaps if we had gotten that structure, if we knew at the time, it, it would have you know, been better for him, given him more clarity, helped him work through those reactivity issues that he had instead of us just putting a bandage over mm -hmm. it and trying to put a prong exactly. collar and going on a walk. Exactly. You exactly. Know? As long as the prong um, or any of these tools aren't used for a band-aid, fine. So if you're doing the work at home and you're crate training and you're, you know, you're focused on everyday interactions that with your dog and the prong also works for you, great. Continue using the prong. But if you're using the prong and your dog is still blowing up on walks or your dog is still um, pulling you, then we need to go back to basics. Yeah. That's that's the thing. Now, we're going to go and start diving into e-collars. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk about e-collars. I mean, people either love them or they hate them. I feel like there's few people in between. But there is such a big misconception in e-collar. And before we did this episode, I did a search on e-collars just to see what was mm -hmm. out there. And there's so many different things out there. And it gets so confusing because you get the guy that's like, e-collars are great. Just buy it online, try it for yourself and see it. And there's other people that says, okay, these are terrible things. Mm -hmm. Don't ever do this. It's inhumane. But I do want to start talking about e-collars just to give you guys a definition of e-collars, what they are. And this is a fact. This is not our opinion, what I'm about to read. Electronic collars utilize electronic stimulation, ES, not electric shock. The ES delivered by modern e-collars is transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, also known as TENS 
which artificially stimulates nerves and sensory receptors. Basically, it stimulates the nerves and sensory receptors that distract your dog from their current behavior and help you use the e-collar as a beneficial and safe training tool. Mm-hmm. So the e-collar for us, when I first introduced the e-collar to my dogs, it was because with when we had Max, he was an excessive barker. I mean, he barked at me for everything, and he would just sit there and bark like we talked about. He's a dramatic little, you know, oh, yeah. fluffy dog. He's got opinions. Yeah. <laughs> Big opinions. Mm-hmm. And he thought, let me bark and I'll get what I want. So every time I would sit and eat something, he wanted what was in my hand. Every time that I would be standing and there was a toy near me and he wanted that toy, he would bark at me consistently. So I like thought you get up and get it. <laughs> oh, Max, he's, he's that guy. So I thought, oh, I need an e-collar. Yeah. So I went on Amazon, purchased the e-collar and I fit it on Max, looked up a video that showed me how to fit the e-collar and I was like, okay, the vibrate button is way better than this, the shock button. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a shock at the time. So I only used the vibrate. Every time he would bark, I would vibrate and say, no, no, Max. And I thought the vibration is fine. It's like my phone. It vibrates. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with it? Mm-hmm. So we used that for Max. And every time I would press the vibrate, he would just look around him like, what just happened? Yeah. He would stop barking, but he would look so confused. Yeah, yeah. And then with Bubbles, I used it because I would let him out in the yard. We have a completely fenced yard. And I would um, let him, you know, just walk around. And I didn't want him to get close to the gate. I didn't want him to go through the gate. He's really into squirrels. So (laughs) if a squirrel went through the gate, Bubbles would most likely try his luck. Oh, yeah. So I put the e-collar in him to get his attention. And every every time I would vibrate, Bubbles would just like stop and look around him. What's happening? Yeah. He wouldn't look at me. He wouldn't know that I'm calling him back. He would just try to figure out what just happened. Where did that come from? Yeah. So when we started working together, you took away the e-collar at first. We didn't use it for the first few sessions. I am known to do that. Yes. And you didn't. I would, the first session we were together, I was like, okay, we have an e-collar. Should I just bring that out already? You're like, no. And this was after they fought. So I'm thinking we need the e-collar. We need everything. Yeah. And you're like, no, no, I'm good with this little rope, which yeah. is a little slip lead. <laughs> That's all we need. That's all we need. This, you know, little rope goes around their neck. That's fine. And it was great. I mean, it changed our dog's lives. It changed my life. And then after a few sessions, we added the mm-hmm. e-collar. And with each dog, you worked with them on a different level. Now, the first thing you told me is, I told you proudly, like many people do, um, we, I only use the vibrate button. I never use the shock button. I mean, people think that when, I, I can't tell you how many times, if somebody already is using an e-collar, that's probably the first thing that they're going to say to me is I would never use the shock, right? First of all, it's an electronic collar, not a shock collar, not electric collar. It's electronic. So the E does not stand for electric. It is, there's no electricity. It's electronic. Um, but you know, people think this, uh, the stim is what we call it is the thing to avoid and that vibrate and or tone because some e-collars will come with tone and and we'll kind of talk about it in a second, what to look for when you're looking, when you're buying an e-collar. Um, the vibrate to our dogs represents 
rattlesnake in their limbic brain. So in, in our human brain, we think of equal or equal shock. So electricity, so harmful, painful, we got to avoid that. Let me just use the vibrate. And then, I mean, you already said it vibrate. Most of the time we'll give these dogs this like, Oh, where was that? And then we think, Oh, well, we know it's not bad. So they must know it's not bad. And at least they gave us some sort of reaction to the e-collar. But the point of the e-collar or what I'm looking for when I'm finding what we call a working level is a response, not a reaction. I want my e-collar to represent a tap on the shoulder. You know, our our e-collars that we use are mini educators. We love mini educators. One of the reasons is that they have a hundred different levels. So it goes from one all the way up to 100. I look at finding our working level where that dog can recognize what is, there's something I feel, but I don't really know what it is. And so I can just ignore it, right? And until we put something with it, then we teach the dog not to ignore it. We kind of finish that equation for them. I don't want to have, I don't, I don't want to have to have it be something where it's, I mean, the dog can't ignore it because it's such a big, you know, feeling, whether it's a vibration or a stimulation, I want it to be something small that the dog knows what it means because I've taught it and then they're able to sort of listen to it. But my working level, if I look at this in terms of pressure, right? So you've got a hundred different layers of, or levels of pressure on your e-collar. Your working level is what looks like, um, you know, a, a tap on the shoulder, your, um, a correction level would be like somebody grabbing my shirt and pulling me. Okay. So it's just a different level of pressure. Now, if you go all the way up on that collar to 100, that's like somebody punching you in the face. Okay. So it's very rare that a dog needs to be punched in the face, right? And not physically, but you know what I mean? It's very rare that they need that level of pressure to do anything. And chances are, if you're going anywhere higher than, I mean, a 20, for a correction level, you're working your dog probably too close or too fast or too soon to the thing that they are reacting to. The biggest key point of the e-collar in the way that we use them is we rarely use them for correction. It's all direction. Most of my dogs will work on single digits. Um, Bubbles works on a one out of 100 and he is your probably most powerful dog out of uh, the three of them. Um, And the one with reactivity but he on an e-collar is a different dog. It's like a missing piece is finally given to him. Not because we tell him no with it. It's because it's something that he can finally understand. It feels like when I'm working him, um, max, I can't remember what his working level is, but it's a single digit. It's very, very low, but it's not to tell them. No, it's another layer of information. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, I'm looking for something where the dog's like, oh, I understand what that feels like um, or what that feeling is. And I know what to do about it. I got to look to mom or I got to look to my handler and they're going to tell me what that means. And they're going to tell me what's needed of me. But it does take absolutely just like everything that we keep saying takes conditioning. You have to teach them what it means. Just like with the slip lead, the prong, all of it, you have to teach them what it means. But problem is people buy it from Amazon, put it on their dog and they just use it to correct over and over and over. And that creates a fear too. I, I hear a lot of people say, my dog is scared of the e-collar. They're, they they see it and because that one time they press the 100 button and it startled them and that already started off that that them understanding the e-collar in the wrong way. Yep. 
Now, when Bubbles see his e-collar, he gets super excited. Same with Kemper, yeah. He knows that means we're going out. That means he's going to run the yard. That means something exciting is about to happen. Yeah. And he doesn't, I mean, if I put the e-collar up to my hand yeah. and I press it, I will not feel it. Yep. The working level really ranges from dog to dog, but most dogs work at a level that we can't feel, mm-hmm. but they can they know there's some kind of pressure going on, some something that's getting their attention, but they also go into, they know their owner is asking something of them. That's why they feel that. It's not just a weird... Of course, sensation. because you've taught that. You know, you've, you've layered it on to different layers, you know, different types of familiar pressure and release. So you already sort of said this, but the first session that we did, you were like, I have the collar, you know, I, I know, you know, we can go ahead and use this and... Easton, I think mentioned this, uh, the last episode, how her dog already had the collar as well. I told her stop using it. I told you stop using it because we didn't have the foundation. They didn't understand pressure and release. We didn't, we weren't also, we didn't live day to day with these dogs quite yet to earn them acting differently. And then if we were to use the e-collar in that moment, the e-collar is forced to just become a correction, right? So once we had the foundation, uh, I mean, people can walk into the center and say, Hey, I want to do an e-collar session. And I will say, I will say, no, you have to, it is a privilege. It is something that I have to make sure that you have, your dog has a, a, you know, place work and a foundation of crate training and that there are other reasons behind, uh, what could be a powerful tool that your dog is going to behave. I want this to be like an added extra layer of freedom. So for Kemper, he gets so, I mean, that dog is amped when I bring out his e-collar. I'm actually having to work on calming him down before I apply it because for him, that e-collar means day camp. That e-collar means we're going out on a walk and we're doing a training session. That e-collar means off leash work, whatever it is, but it's, it's got, it's given him so much more freedom. One, because I've taught it correctly Two, because I mean, I didn't introduce it until he already had a lot of these skills. And so then when I put it on him, it made sense to him. It wasn't just, this, um, I wasn't asking anything different of him with the e-collar than I had ever asked before. It was all the same. Yeah. Now, how would you properly fit an e-collar? We're going to show this also. Yeah. Yeah. So you want the e-collar, uh, high up around the neck as well. The problem that most people have is that they don't tighten it enough. I cannot tell you how many times that people have walked in and they're like, my, I've got a prong collar, I've got an e-collar and they're all the way down on the bottom of the neck and they are like jewelry. They're hanging like necklaces, right? So your, your e-collar, the whole point is that the contact points need to be able to touch the skin. So you want it pretty high up around, um, around your dog's neck and then a good little test to see if we are in the uh, right place tightness wise is I'll put my fingers underneath the contact points and kind of rest the e-collar on top. And then if I pull my fingers out and they, there are indentations in my fingers, that's what I'm looking for, for a, a good fit for longer haired dogs. They make, um, additions like wings, contact points that can kind of cut through all the hair. And then for Kemper, he has, um, what's called a comfort pad on his e-collar because he has skin issues. So anything like that finite is going to rub against his skin and cause pinks, you know, cause all skin to be pink and hair to fall out. So, um, I do these comfort pads on them. So it kind of spreads out the stem and when it's rubbing so much, it's not causing such a big skin irritation. So there are absolutely, if your dog has sensitive skin, super short hair, super long hair, 
there are a bunch of different attachments that you can get to the collar that can help. Yeah. Now, if you're looking for a trainer, find one that teaches you pressure and release first and then overlays it with an e-collar if your dog needs it. Yep. That's so important because if you are using the e-collar right now and you're still experiencing issues with your dog and it hasn't been introduced properly, you need to back away from that and go back to the basics. Yeah. You know, pressure and release, my dogs would have never understood what an e-collar meant if, if Millie didn't work with them with pressure and release first and then add on the e-collar. So now they're... They love their e-collar. They're fine with it. They don't realize they even have it on. Yep. And it's giving me the attention that I want from them at the moment that I use it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think going back to, I mean, yes, what you said, and then also what we kind of talked about in the last episode of you don't want a trainer who is going to treat your dog like they have treat uh, that they would treat every single dog, like this recipe based trainer of, I use a, an e-collar for every single dog, a prong collar for every single dog. The first time that they walk in here, because why, I mean, your dog is of course going to act the same because they're being given the same information and you are being, you're setting up the prong and the e-collar specifically to be used as a correction, because why would your dog behave any differently when nothing else has changed? You've just now amped it up in the correction level. So most of the time, trainers like that are going to, for example, for recall, for calling my dog when he comes back to me. The first time that I am working on that with an e-collar, I let's say it's Kemper. I'm saying Kemper, come. I layer on top of my e-collar at his working level. The same at the same time that I say Kemper, come. I apply leash pressure and e-collar pressure until he is committed to coming back to me. A lot of trainers in that same example um, will say, Kemper, come, wait for him to not come, and then press the collar. In that moment, the collar is a correction for not coming back to me. I want the collar to be another layer of pressure, right? So an, an addition of, okay, this, there's leash pressure being pulled towards me. He's, you know, I'm using leash pressure to pull him towards me on top of e-collar pressure. And then eventually, we went to Florida this January, Weird time to go to Florida, I know. Um, but when we were on the beach, he was very used to that e-collar pressure, meaning the same thing as the leash. So then I was able to take that layer of the leash pressure off and just use the e-collar. That's, yeah. your, that's your end goal. There is another training tool that we don't have on this table right now, which is food. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, same thing with um, people coming to me saying that, they would never, or they've only used the vibration. Um, every time, almost every time I do a walking session, people are like, okay, I've got treats. And I'm like, we don't need those <laughs> for the walk. I don't use a lot of food. Um, uh, food tends to excite our dogs. And most people are calling me out to actually calm their dogs down. Um, but the one time I will use food is for recall. So I want the, I mean, food will motivate my dog. I use it as a way to kind of build drive. Um, so if I want my dog turning on a dime coming to me, I'll use food at the very beginning, layered on top of e-collar pressure, layered on top of leash pressure, all the same things, and then reward with food um, when they're back to me. But I try to wean it, uh, I try to wean that kind of out really, really quickly on top of the way that I use it, I think is a little bit different. I, I make sure um, the monks of Newski, it was my first workshop that I ever went to. That's where I originally learned a lot of collar from. But um, they said with food, 
make sure that you are not a vending machine. You're a slot machine. And I loved that. I loved that. You don't want to just boom every single time. Here's food. Here's food. Here's food. It's always kind of random when I give Kemper food when he comes back to me. Um, and there are sometimes where I'll still add it in. Maybe once a month I'll kind of take him to a new place and make sure that I've got a couple of his own kibbles. But I don't use food for place. I don't use food for the leash walk because I want everything to be because of our relationship. In order to teach recall, I don't need food. Sometimes it helps, but I don't need it. Yeah. And a lot of what you always tell us is you want to work with neutrality. You want everything to be neutral and calm. Mm -hmm. There is no excitement going on. You don't need to excite your dog to get a response from them. You actually want to show them everything's supposed to be chill. I mean, I don't know of a session that I've ever, I can't think of any other, any time where people have ever called me out and they want their dog to be more excited. I mean, actually, no, I can think of one, but that was a dog who was kind of shut down and she was just adopted. Um, But other than that, people call me out because they want a calmer dog. And then they use all this food and all this talking and all of this excitement and they wonder why their dog isn't calm. And then they'll buy any collar and use it to correct. Um, But it's a situation most of the time that we've accidentally created inadvertently and unknowingly. But if I want calm... I need to teach calm. I need to practice calm. I need to build calm. And I don't use food to reward calm. Yeah. Now with, um, there's another type of training that we utilize a lot Mm -hmm. with your training is body language and spatial pressure. Yep. Now with, uh, going back to Max, we actually, with his barking problem, I try the e-collar, yes, that gave me a reaction with a vibration that I, that's not correct. You know, it didn't really work on his problem. He didn't understand what I wanted from him. But what Max actually needed was body language and spatial pressure. Yep. And when we started to use that, he understood this is my space. You cannot come in here unless I invite you to. And every time that we were working on this, when he would be in our, on our, in our kitchen or around us when we're eating, I would put his place board nearby and I would use this body language and spatial pressure to show him that's where you need to be. Yep. And that fit, that helped him so yeah. much, you know, just that, just me showing him my body language and spatial pressure. Isn't that the point though? right? It's you are the ultimate tool. You know, you, you are the reason that your dog listens. I want you to be the reason that your dog gives you eye contact, not because you have food in your hand, but because you're you. I want you to be able to walk down the street with your dog calmly following, not because you're going to blast them on an e-collar, you've got food in your hand, but because you're you. I mean, you are the reason you should be the reason for it all. You are the ultimate training tool people overthink it. And we pick up an e-collar at the store, we pick up a prong collar and all of this stuff. And we get a little, um, complicated and dogs are very simple creatures. You give them, you provide them information, you provide leadership, they will follow. We don't have to complicate it that much. Do these tools sometimes make it easier? Absolutely. But when I walk into, we'll talk about spatial pressure. Like when I walk into, um, walk towards Kemper, or Bubbles, or Max. Um, Kane 
struggles with spatial pressure. We're working on it. Kane thinks that it's my job to walk over him, right? right? Or walk around him, yield to his spatial pressure. And that is something that we work on with him when he's at day camp with us of if I'm walking towards you, it's your job to move out of the way. And I do that all the time in a pack of dogs. There's 15 dogs playing. I will walk through them because I want to make sure that they are very aware of where I am at all times. Um, but let's say a dog tries to come off of place. I, I want to be able to eventually just kind of look at them and they go back to place. Mm -hmm. But the way that that starts is I start doing that by using a leash and putting them back on place and layering on spatial pressure. So squaring up with them, walking into them, almost acting like kind of a border collie, herding them back into place. And then over time, just like we talked about with the e-collar, I take away the layer of the leash. So then my spatial pressure then becomes the thing that kind of they are listening to. And then over time, I have to use less and less spatial pressure. So even in that moment, pressure on is when I'm facing my dog moving into them. Pressure off is relaxation reward. So that's how they can kind of tell when they're doing something right or wrong. Now, I get this question a lot and it, it could be something that um, that people just kind of think of, of, I don't want my dog to just always back away from me when I'm walking towards them. And my response to that is, I want your dog to read the room. If I'm walking towards my dog, like hand out, like all like happy, talking in an excited voice, I want my dog to know that that means, yes, you can stay there or come into me. But if I'm walking towards my dog with direct eye contact, my shoulders are back, my chin's up, my chest is out, and I am moving into them, I want them to look up at me and sit down, all without words, all without words. And that's where, that's how they communicate. I mean, that's a lot of times people come to me and they say, my two dogs fought and there was no warning. There's always a warning. There is most of the time they're communicating with spatial pressure um, or psychological pressure, like that eye contact. And we just don't think about it as, as a, a way of communicating. Body language is so important for us and we forget that. We try to use our words so much mm -hmm. on our daily life. We forget to be quiet mm -hmm. and let our body language do the talking. You walk into a room, you can be you know, super excited and, and saying all the right things. But if your body language is yeah. off, nobody's going to take you serious. Yeah. And when I walk into the room with my dogs right now, because we have, you know, so many, we have our diff, so many different personalities into one room. Yeah. And when I walk in, I try to be as quiet as possible. I mm -hmm. don't say a word. I point to the crate. They know what that means. Whoever's loose goes in the crate then I loose the other dog out and I don't say anything mm -hmm. and I just walk out and there is not one bark. There's no issues. It's completely quiet and an easy transition. Because you're influencing the energy. Yeah. You're starting the quiet. That's one of my favorite challenges. And whoever's listening, I challenge you, go 24 hours without saying a word to your dog, without saying one word. And you yeah. will be astonished how much easier they understand you. By, by using, you know, spatial pressure, eye contact, um, all of this stuff. And you don't need as much words as you think that you do. The more you say, the less they understand anyway. But go 24 hours, don't say a word to your dog and see how much your relationship changes and how clearer things are to your dog. It's incredible. It is. And with your body language, it also plays into how much of a leader you are. The first time you taught us how to walk our dogs mm -hmm. and, and with a sleep lead, you said shoulders back, you have chin to up. be straight, chin up, 
You have to walk like a leader for them to understand what you want from them. Mm -hmm. Every time you're reminding us where to put, how high our arms should be. People turn into T-Rex or a bodybuilder when I hand them the leash. Their arms just go immediately up. And that doesn't, that doesn't translate relaxation and calm confidence to the dog. That leash is a direct line from my energy to the dogs. Yeah. They can feel everything. So not only is it where, um, you know, our body language is such an important tool, so is our energy. I've got to really truly feel it and and know, but yeah, shoulders back, chin up, looking where you're going. If you're truly leading that walk, look where you're going. Yeah. Don't be staring at your dog. I remember I got onto Ozzy the first, that second session too, because he was just staring. I have pictures of him staring at the dogs because he could not believe that he was walking all three of them at one time. But still, yeah. it it really, if you are leading, you have to lead. You have to be aware of your surroundings, know where you're going and be very decisive. So your energy, your body language is probably, I mean, I know I said the slip lead is my favorite tool, but obviously energy and body language is the one that they understand the most. And that's the the first thing that you help us understand is first you actually talked about body language and energy. Then we went into the sleep lead techniques. Then we went our made our way down that ladder. But body language, you don't recognize how big it is until you're aware of it. And once you become aware of your body language, you start catching yourself making these mistakes mm-hmm. that confuse your dog. And when you go without talking, just using your body language and you realize they're responding to that, then you realize how powerful it is. So we really have to step back when dealing with our dogs and recognizing what what it is that they need. If you're not getting a reaction you want from your dog, then try to work on that instead of just randomly introducing tools like these to Mm -hmm. them. Yeah. I have to say it again and again, get a trainer. Find a trainer that works with you and that they're open to any technique that works with your dog. Yep. Like we talked about on the last episode, the biggest thing is finding an open-minded trainer Mm -hmm. that is willing to be honest with you. And if they don't know a technique, they're willing to point you to the right direction instead of saying, no, I don't use this. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's a huge green flag in trainers is that, they're going to say, actually, you know, kind of like, I mean, that sets me up to look really good, but kind of like what I said with the prong of, I don't really use them. I don't have that much experience with them. So I'm not going to talk a lot about them or, or share a lot of my opinions about them. Um, because I, I just don't have the experience now. Do I think that they're a bad tool? Absolutely not. Do I, do I think that maybe I'll change it if you're still having behavioral problems? Yes. But if it works for you, fine. But Absolutely. With any of these tools, find somebody who's open-minded, find somebody who's willing to teach you and take the time to teach you and your dog, not, um, how they teach every single dog, but you and your dog. Um, and don't, don't just pop it on your dog and expect the dog to just be different. Yeah. There's a conditioning process to all of these tools, all of them. Now the, the last one that we are going to finish off talking about is the muzzle. Yep. It's the best. Yeah. It's a very controversial too. Every time yeah. people see them with my, on my dogs, they, I get a random message. If I record them, you dogs shouldn't wear that, but they don't understand. No, I have powerful breeds, mm-hmm. very powerful breeds. The muzzle for us gave bubbles such an immense freedom 
that I am comfortable and relaxed. My body language is able to be relaxed because he has his muzzle on. He feels comfortable with his muzzle on. He doesn't really realize he has it on. He doesn't doesn't. really care about (laughs) it. Um, But it gave him extra freedom. It gave him the ability to be a dog and feel free and have me as the owner be relaxed near him. He deserves that. Energy is the most important tool. So with the muzzle, how would you properly put a muzzle on a dog? Yeah. So when you are looking for a muzzle, your big thing is you're going to look for a basket muzzle or an open muzzle. So you don't want one of those nylon muzzles that forces the dog's mouth shut. The reason being is I want my dog to pant. I want my dog to be able to pant. Normally with dog dog body language, you can you can tell when a dog goes from a an open mouth to a closed mouth. That's a good sign that they're kind of tense, right? That they're picking up on something, they're alert. Um, and if we're dealing with a, a reactive dog, that that can be an indicator of, oop, they're getting a little bit more tense. I need to watch out for that. And when a dog goes from a closed mouth to an open mouth, that's most of the time a sign of relax, relaxation. So if I've got a basket muzzle on and I'm able to sort of tell um, two dogs interacting across the room, one of them is in a muzzle and that dog is sitting there, um, you know, with a closed mouth, I've got my eye on them, especially if they're, you know, a dog reactive dog interacting with another dog, that dog's got a closed mouth of kind of looking at them, looking at them. And then all of a sudden they open their mouth and pant. I sort of relax a little bit like, okay, we're good. We're good. But that is the most important thing. You want to have room for, for your dog to be able to pant, not only for their comfort, but so that you can read them a little bit better. Um, and then the other thing is you want them to be able to still drink water and take treats if you want to give them a treat. Um, so make sure that the actual basket of it is a pretty a, a little bit bigger than you think that you would want them. Um, Baskerville is a great, uh, they make muzzles, but they have very um, specific sizes. You can go to um, the muzzle movement on Instagram or trust your dog on Instagram. Um, and I, I know trust your dog will make custom sizes. I don't know if the muzzle movement will make custom ones, but they are a, a little bit different. So the proper fitting of them to your dog it is so important, because, especially if your dog is going to wear it for a long period of time. It's very important. But the best part, and you already sort of said it, the best part about muzzles is the confidence that it gives the humans around them. Um, there are a lot of dogs that come to our day camp that, that would never be able to come if I did not muzzle them. They just, I mean, it would be I mean, it would be awful, awful if I didn't have these muzzles. But there are also a lot of dogs that I would not have the same energy in that room if they didn't have muzzles on. Knowing that there are some of these dogs that they're, it's okay if they make a mistake, that they're not going to truly harm anyone if they make a mistake or if I make a mistake and I miss something. And, uh, you know, they go for another dog or they get a little bit of tense or they go for me or whatever it is, everyone's still safe. That, I mean, the relief that it can provide people is insane. It's insane. Now, when do you typically introduce a muzzle to a dog? I think we can slightly like, for example, bubbles. Yeah. Yeah. So with bubbles, the reason that we, I can't remember if we started introducing it after his nail trim I think we that's the, fir- the that's the first time that we did it. Bubbles was not 
not happy with the nails. And now he's convinced Max to not be happy with the nails. And Bubbles is totally fine with the nails now. Yeah, he's know. totally fine. My boys are weird. Yeah. Kane is just like, here, take my paw. But Bubbles, we, I mean, obviously I will start introducing the muzzle if a dog has had a history of reactivity. And I am planning, we are at a point in our training process where I'm planning on putting them around the thing that they react to. Um, there are, if a dog that I get called out for a session has a history of biting humans, I'm not seeing that dog unless there's a muzzle on them because I don't know you, I don't know that dog. And that's a rule that I have for my trainers and all of my assistant trainers is if your dog has, uh, has previously bitten anybody, you need to muzzle train at home before we come out there. Because I, you don't, just because we walk in and we're trainers doesn't mean we're magic. Doesn't mean your dog's not going to bite us. He doesn't know we're a trainer, right? Yeah. Um, but there are a bunch of different ways that I will introduce the muzzle. Um, the Muzzle Up Project, um, if you go to their website, they have a step-by-step kind of plan that they that you can use to start introducing and conditioning the muzzle. There are some dogs that I'll take it a lot slower with. Uh, and then there are some dogs that I can just like bubbles pop it on and he's like, cool. Yeah. What are we doing? What's what's this <laughs> yeah. thing? Should I eat it? Yeah that's, yeah, that's pretty much bubbles. I personally like using the muzzle on bubbles when there he's around all of our dogs mm-hmm. and you know we're going on a pack walk or maybe you know I want to let him go in the yard and run or whatever it may be. Yeah. I can put it on him and I can let him off leash with the muzzle yeah. in our own yard. He doesn't really care about it. He gets to play with our dogs, but it's giving me the confidence of, okay, nothing is really going to go wrong here. He can't just use his teeth as a correction if something really annoys him. Bubbles, anytime he gets super annoyed, he feels like, you know, his, the only way he can correct is with his teeth. That's what's natural for them. It's natural. And he's, he's not the one to just, you know, react right away. There are signs, but with the muzzle, it allows me to see those signs and it allows me to come in and correct or pull him away if I need to. Or work him through it and show him better ways of dealing with it, knowing that if you miss something or make a mistake, nobody's hurt, right? Yeah. That's the best part of the muzzle. But I mean, the key to conditioning um, is make sure that this muzzle is not associated with the stressful event. So a lot of times if your dog doesn't like the vet, Okay. A lot of times people will only pull that muzzle out right before the vet. And then next time, you know, that they're due for their yearly vaccines, all of a sudden the muzzle comes out and the dog's like, wait a second, that thing means vet. You can't put that on me. And then the reactivity or whatever it is now starts the second that the muzzle is pulled out. Yeah. I want the muzzle to be a neutral tool. I had my previous dog, um, Jabroni was very reactive, very human reactive, especially at the vet. It took me every single time at least two hours to get the muzzle on him, at least. I mean, he, because that muzzle represented stress because I didn't condition it right the first time I got him um, or the first time we used it. We only used it for nail trims. And so then muzzle equaled nail tri- equals nail trim. And then now all of a sudden I can't get the muzzle on the dog. And it's a whole big fight. That's the last thing that we want. We want the muzzle to be, I don't need it to be the best thing in the world for the dog. I just need it to not be that big of a deal either way. Yeah. So there are proper ways to introduce each and every tool for training. Obviously working with a trainer is going to allow you to know what your dog does need and what's really going to work. But it's all about 
being able to understand how to introduce these in a, a step that's going to allow them to understand what each of these tools mean. So try to understand what your dog needs. And if you're using something right now that's not working out, step back. Yep. Don't be afraid. Go back to, to basics. Yeah. Go back to basics. So we really covered a lot today and we're going to um, make sure that we um, we leave our email that you guys can send questions to. Please, we're really open. Please ask us questions because there's a lot of stuff and minutia stuff with the, with all of these tools that, um, you know, maybe I said something and you're kind of picturing it a different way. Please reach out, ask questions. We We want to know. Yes, our email is at the end of the episode. And for next episode, we are going to talk about the common themes in dog ownership and dog training. What did a typical first session looks like? First session is a big session. Mm -hmm. It really is. It's a big session. It helps you just really spins your mind because you figure out, you know, what have you been doing that's not helping your dog? It's not uncommon for there to be tears in the first session. Not from me. I would, that would be weird. People wouldn't hire me again. (laughs) (laughs) But so next, next episode, we are going to talk about all these things and we're going to dive into what you may be doing that's confusing your dog. And that's also causing your relationship with your dog to not grow as it could grow. Yep. What's getting lost in translation. Exactly. So join us on the next episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time. Bye. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Think Like a Dog Podcast and follow at Mirror Image Canine for training tips. If you have any questions, please reach out to us via email at info at thinklikeadogpodcast.com.